Hey man, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You got some information, thoughts, or views that you want the world to hear? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other places people like to listen? Man, the big question though was how do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of those questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. So best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with a great sponsors too, so you can get paid to podcast. One of the benefits that I really love about doing my podcast with Anchor is the ability to get my podcast on multiple platforms with the click of a button. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm backward slash start. Go to anchor.fm slash start. One more time for the people in the back. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me in a diverse community of podcasters already using anchor that's anchor.fm slash start i can't wait to hear your podcast till next time what's good family it's your boy big l with another broadcast man another episode of the book study Black Theology and Black Power by Dr. James H. Cone. We had a real dope time last time, man. I appreciate everyone for supporting, man. Uh, The broadcast, the podcast. I mean, the, the love has been overwhelming. Folks have been sharing and commenting all up and down my social media feeds, asking for more and more of this, uh, this wonderful dialogue and one, this wonderful text. So I, I thank you guys for supporting it, man. Um, I'm going to continue. Like I said, the importance of this text, the importance of this topic cannot be minimized. It is so much to be learned, so much to be discussed. And I pray that this, uh, this text will be uh, a seed, man unto you to propel you to continue to seek God first, to go deeper in this topic, man, and to do Luke 4.18. That is the, uh, there was one scripture that I would use to stand on for this particular book study. It would be Luke 4.18. So when you get a chance, you grab your Bibles and you read Luke 4.18. Uh, I believe there's a mandate in there for Christians. Uh, there's some instructions in there for us to do something. Now, just a little bit more uh, housekeeping before I dig in, man. One of the things I want to say is this particular podcast, the forum, um, is going to be multi-layered, multi-topics. 
It won't always be a, a, a book study. It won't always be uh, a book walkthrough. But, but since I love to read and I would rather read than do so many other things, there's going to be plenty of book studies. So what I may do, I'm still contemplating. I'm still trying to figure it out and decide whether I want to do it or not is actually create a whole separate podcast just for the sake of book studies. Because I have a a book club for young black males called The Page Turners. Now, I may just take that title, The Page Turners, and create a, a whole separate podcast purely for book studies, man, book walkthroughs, book reviews, things along those lines. So I'm, I'm contemplating that, trying to decide if that's the direction I want to go. I'm leaning towards that. Uh, since it's so early in the game, I've still got time to make changes if I desire. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see how that works, man. But without further ado, man, I told you I'm only going to try to keep these particular uh, podcasts, book studies, man, to right around 20, uh, 30 minutes, no more than that. I know you guys' time is incredibly uh, valuable, incredibly important. Uh, so let me dig in. We're still in the preface of this book. Uh, we haven't gotten past it yet. So I'm going to pick up right back in the preface of Black Theology and Black Power by Dr. James H. Cohn. And the text reads, An example of the weakness of the 1960s Black Freedom Movement as defined by Black Theology and Black Power was its complete blindness to the problem of sexism, especially in Black church community. When I read my book today, I'm embarrassed by its sexist language and patriarchal perspective. There is not even one preference to a woman in the whole book, with black women playing such a dominant role in African-American liberation struggle, past and present, how could I have been so blind? The publication of the 20th anniversary edition tempted me to read Black Theology and Black Power of its sexist language as I did in the revised copy of Black Theology and Liberation, and also insert some references to black women. But I decided to let the language remain unchanged as a reminder how sexist I once was, and also that I might be encouraged never to forget it. It is easy to change the language of oppression without changing the social-political situation of its victims. I know existentially, what this means from the vantage point of racism. This is a good point he brings up right here, man. Whites have learned how to use less offensive language, but they have not changed the power relationships between blacks and whites in the society. Because of the process of changing our language, combined with the token presence of middle-class African-Americans in the institutions, it is now even more difficult to define racist behavior of whites. Man, that is crucial. That piece right there, whites have learned how to use less offensive language, which is so accurate. They don't have to call us nigger anymore, even though currently, in the current landscape, uh, 
you're seeing more and more videos and things along those lines and recordings of white folks uh, calling people niggers and, and just doing all type of outward external racist behavior, which is incredibly problematic, I believe, for black folks, particularly, particularly from the standpoint of this. We as a people have to be very careful. I know we get angry, justifiably so. There's a level of rage that we feel when white people show or display external racist behavior, such as calling us nigger. And I know one of our first thoughts is of violence. There's a couple of videos, man, that shot up where a white dude called a black woman nigger and a black dude out of nowhere took his glasses off, took his shirt off nice and neatly, and then stretched the white dude. I mean, (laughs) stressed him and hit him, and they were on the subway. But he hit him so hard that the dude fell and was hanging off the side of the subway platform. And next thing you know, he hit him again and he falls down where the rails are. Now, my first thought was, damn, if this white dude dies or hits that third rail, if a train comes, that brother, his family, his community are going to be devastated because of that particular action. So I just think that we we have to be mindful of those things, man. I'm not, you know, trying to police anyone's actions. I'm not trying to tell folk not to do it. I'm just saying you got to be incredibly cautious when you do that type of thing because you are a black man underneath the system of white supremacy in America. Got to be real careful, man. But this part where he says whites have learned how to use less offensive language, that sounds like white liberals to me. Because white liberals will call out certain aspects of quote-unquote racism, man. But they really ain't trying to put no work in. They ain't putting no skin in the game to actually change the dynamics of white supremacy. That's why I always tell y'all, y'all fall in love with this aspect of having white allies, that, you know, you, you, you do everything you can to pander and cater to white people, hoping that you can somehow shame them into being uh, your ally. And, and my thought process is, if they are your ally, what is your expectation for them in the participation, in participation of the war that you're waging? Or are you just expecting them to offer consolatory words? Are you expecting them to put some money up? Are you actually, what's your level of expectation with your allyship? And I don't think that we think that far in advance when we do that, because unfortunately, many of us have a strong desire for white validation and white presence. But here's another aspect of this one passage, man. And I told you, we're going we gonna to walk through this book piece by piece, man, because it's so much meat up in this joint. So many things to expand upon. And there's going to be other things where we just want to let the text do what the text going to do. But here's a part. Because of the process of changing their language, combined with the token presence of middle-class African-Americans in their institutions, Right off the top of my head, I can give you and think of a number of middle-class black pastors 
who constantly cape and cater towards white evangelical Christianity. I can give you a ton of them, but this, this, I'm not here to do that type of, uh, 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 of discourse, but there are a number of them. And we have to begin to realize that within black life in America, middle class, classism exists amongst black people. Classism exists. Some of the most dangerous people that have ever been melanated have been black people, black middle class, black elites who have aligned themselves with the white power structure to not only uh, gain a bigger piece of the pie, but to maintain the crumbs that they get. And it's amazing that Dr. James Cone is acknowledging this and here in his text. Let me read more. The kind of problem is beginning to emerge in regard to sexism with the recent development of womanist theology as expressed in the articulate and challenging voices of the lawyers Williams, Jackie Grant, Katie Connor, Vernita Weems, Cheryl Gilks, Kelly Brown, and others, even African-American male ministers and theologians are learning how to talk less offensively about women's liberation. Many seem to have forgotten that they once used exclusive language. Amnesia is an enemy of justice. We must never forget what we once were, lest we repeat our evil deeds in new forms. Hmm. I do not want to forget that I was once silent about the oppression of women in the church and in society. Silence gives support to the powers that be. It is my hope that by speaking out against sexism, other male African preachers, African-American preachers and theologians, especially in the historic black church, will also lift their prophetic voices against this enemy of God in the black church community. So far, too few of us have spoken out in our own denominations. Man, that's true. Black theology and black power is also limited by Western theological perspectives that I was fighting against. After spending six years of studying white theology in graduate school, I knew that the time had come for me to make a decisive break with my theological mentors. And that's a struggle that a lot of black folks are having. A lot of black Christians who have been banging with John MacArthur, John Piper, Paul Washer, and all these other white evangelical cats, whether they're reformed, uh, persuasion or they're in the Pentecostal persuasion. I can run down a list of names there too. There's a difficulty there of breaking from that camp and searching and seeking out your own personal theological perspective. And again, it goes right back to that same thought process, man. We, in many instances, we fall into the thought process that white is right. I don't, I can give you a number of instances where I've seen black Christians flee the black church and begin to attend white churches because they felt like white churches were more theologically sound. And if that's not one of the most erroneous thought processes on the planet. Anyway, okay. Here we go. He begins to talk about his own difficulties. But that was easier said than done. I did not know much about my own theological tradition, which had given risen to my rebellion. I was struggling to become a black radical theologian 
without much knowledge of the historical development of African-American religion and radicalism. I had studied a little Negro history. I studied a little Negro history in high school and college, but no text by a black author had been included in my theological curriculum in graduate school. That was one of the things that made me so angry. I had been greatly miseducated in theology and it showed in my neo-Orthodox Barthanian perspective of black theology and black power. Trying to find black radical theologians, black radical pastors, black radical churches is still in a huge, huge problem. And finding them is, is very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. And I think that's one of the reasons why the death of Dr. James Cone hit me so hard was the fact that I knew he was one of the few black radical theologians. <laughs> how can you call how can you call what you have written black theology? African American theologians pointedly asked me. When most of the theological sources you use to articulate your positions are derived from white theology, you claim to be heretical. Your theology, they continue, is black in name only and not in reality. To be black in the latter sense, you must derive the sources and the norm from the community in whose name you speak. That criticism was totally unexpected, he said. It shook me as nothing else had. I had expected my black brothers and sisters to support me in my attacks on white theology, but it seemed to me at the time that they were attacking me instead of our enemies. In time, however, I came to see the great value of their criticism. My effort to correct this cultural weakness in my theological perspective has been an ongoing process since the publication of The Spirituals and the Blues, 1972. As I began to reflect more deeply upon my own cultural history, tracking it back to African continent, I began to see the great limitations of Karl Barth's influence upon my Christological perspective. Barth's assertion of the word of God in opposition to natural theology in the context of Germany during the 1930s may have been useful. But the same theological methodology cannot be applied to the cultural history of African-Americans and their Americans or to Africans and Asians on their continents. Of course, I knew that when I wrote Black Theology and Black Power, but my theological training in neo-orthodoxy hindered my ability to articulate this point. And you just see, man, you can hear his personal struggles, his, his, his challenges that he faces dealing with uh, trying to find his place in the radical aspect of his own theology, Try, trying to get an understanding, trying to, 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 to navigate. You can feel his search. And I know a lot of y'all, man, feel the same search. That same desperation of trying to find your place in Christianity as a black man. Because in, underneath white theology, underneath white evangelical, European, westernized theology, the thought process is you're just, you're part of the body. 
You're part of the body. You're part of all. We're all part of one body. So what makes you unique and specific and part of your God-given specificity is the fact that you are a black person, black male, female, or black child. So you're trying to find that, trying to search that. And that search, man, I'm telling you, searching for your place in black theology. Do you have a place in white theology? It's a struggle, man. I can dig it. And you can see, you can hear Dr. Cohn's struggle. You can hear the turmoil, man, that he wrestles with here in this particular text. And we're only in the beginning of this. We're still in the preface of this book. As in 1969, I still regard Jesus Christ today as a chief focus of my perspective on God, but not to the exclusion of other religious perspectives. God's reality is not bound by one manifestation of the divine in Jesus, but can be found wherever people are being empowered to fight for freedom. Life-giving power for the poor and the oppressed is the primary criteria that we must use to judge the adequacy of our theology not abstract concepts. And that that there's going to be many aspects of this book, man, that's going to make people incredibly uncomfortable. Incredibly uncomfortable. And I dig it. It makes pure sense. But what I'm hoping is that this aspect, this, this, this theology, this Black liberation theology, we can take what we're hearing and begin to have dialogues about it and discourse about it separate from our Conditioned biases of white evangelical Christianity. As Malcolm X put it, I believe in a religion that believes in freedom. Anytime I have to accept a religion that won't let me fight a battle for my people, I say to hell with that religion. Another weakness of black theology and black power was my failure to link the African-American struggle for liberation in the United States with similar struggles in the third world. If I had listened more carefully to Malcolm X and Martin King, I might have avoided the error. Both made it unquestionably clear, especially in their speeches against the United States government's involvement in the Congo and Vietnam, that there can be no freedom for African-Americans from racism in this country unless it is a tie to the liberation of third world nations from U.S. imperialism. White supremacy is a global system of oppression. Now, if your focus is purely on Native Blacks, descendants of slave DOS here in America, I fully and completely understand that perspective, and I share aspects of it. But let us not be fooled in thinking that we're the only ones here suffering under some form of white supremacy. We've got to be careful with that. You can't understand what is going on in Mississippi if you don't understand what is going on in the Congo. Malcolm told the Harlem audience, they're both the same. The same interests are at stake. The same sides are drawn up. The same schemes are at work in the Congo that are at work in Mississippi. During the last year of his life, Malcolm traveled throughout the Middle East and Africa as he sought to place the black freedom struggle in the United States into an international context. When African-American leaders questioned the value of his international focus, Malcolm said, 
The point is that I would like to impress upon every Afro-American leader is that there is no kind of action in this country ever going to bear fruit unless that action is tied in with the overall international struggle. Martin King shared a similar concern. Against the advice of many friends in the civil rights movement, churches and government, he refused to separate peace and civil rights issues. His condemnation of his government's involvement in the war in Vietnam, referring to America as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, alienated many supporters, i.e. white supporters, in both the white and black communities. Martin King contended that the black freedom struggle and the struggle of the Vietnamese for self-determination were tied together because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Now, you notice, man, I'm sure some of y'all have heard that quote a hundred times, a hundred times, a hundred times. But you always only hear a piece of that particular one. You never actually hear the full scope and the full magnitude of that particular topic or that particular quote. (laughs) That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. My failure to link black liberation theology to the global struggles for freedom contributed to my blindness regarding the problem of classism. Class privilege was and still is a dominant reality in the white community of the United States, as well as in the African-American community. In fact, the problem of oppression in the world today is defined not exclusively in terms of race, but also in terms of the great economic gap between rich and poor nations and the haves and have-nots within them. Again, if I had listened more intently to Martin King and Malcolm X, I might have seen what I did not see at the time I wrote Black Theology and Black Power, both turning towards economic issues during their latter, latter lives. They saw the great limitations of capitalism, and while rejecting the anti-democratic aesthetics principles of the Soviet Union, Martin and Malcolm began to search for the human democratic side of socialism. What was clear to both of them and clear to me now is that we need to develop a struggle for freedom that moves beyond race to include all oppressed peoples of the world. As Malcolm X told a Columbia University audience a few days before his assassination, it is incorrect to classify the revolt of the Negro as simply a racial conflict of black against white or as purely an American problem. Rather, we are today seeing a global rebellion of oppressed against the oppressor, the exploited against the exploited. Despite its limitations, I hope that the black liberation and black power will remain all or remind all who read it that good theology is not abstract but concrete, not neutral but committed. Why? Because the poor were created for freedom, not poverty. Dr. James H. Cohn, February 1989. (laughs) On the next broadcast, man, on the next aspect, episode of this book study, Black Theology and Black Power, we're going to jump into the introduction. We're going to jump into the introduction of this particular book, man. And even in just the preface, man, it is so much meat and so many different things to unpack there. I'm loving this. I'm loving having this discussion with you guys, man. Couple things, man, before I get out of this joint. 
uh, a couple places that you can reach me for dialogue if you want to have a discussion about this particular topic. My email address is the forum W B I G E L. It's all together the forum W big L at gmail.com. The forum W big L at gmail.com. You can find me at Twitter at Elgin Bailey. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. I love to hear your thoughts, man. Questions, comments, criticisms. Uh, I appreciate you guys supporting, man. Please send your comments, man. And more importantly, please share this with your friends, man. This is, uh, I believe, some life-changing information. Till next time, man. I holla.